it's more helpful to look at the spirit of it. Mm-hmm. King Cyrus from Persia is probably the most underlooked, most important human in the formation of all civilization in some ways. The innovation that he brought over Babylon and Assyria, when you read in your Bible, these were extraordinarily brutal kingdoms. And along comes Cyrus. So the the typical thing to happen when during a coup, say, or when you're a conquest, maybe is the better word, you kill the king, you kill their kids, you convert people to your language, to your religion, you force assimilation. Mm-hmm. And the innovation to empire that Cyrus brought was radical acceptance. In fact, as you probably know, he's the guy who freed the Jews from Babylonian exile. Gave him a choice. You want to stay here? Stay here. You want to go? Guess what? You can go back to Jerusalem. I'll open the royal coffers. You can use my money to rebuild the temple. In fact, we're going to have, you know, cedars from Lebanon cut down. We're going to have Phoenician sailors bring the wood for you. He, he was like, you want to worship your God? You worship your God? Ask him to bless me while you're at it. Hey everybody, welcome back. I am Seth. This is a Can I Say This at Church podcast. Very, very pleased you're here. I welcome back my good friend Paul to the show today. And we talk a bit about Christ and the Messiah and the titling of that. And I can promise you, you're going to hear some things that you're not used to hearing. And some things that I think will open some doors, at least they have for me, with the way that I view really the prophets. Uh, It has been a word that I've been working through recently. It's been an apocalypse for me. So uh, talking with Paul on some of these things and the the concept of Christ and the Messiah. Those are just huge, huge things. And so stay with me. A little bit of editor's note here. Zoom had a bad day. I don't know what was happening, but you're going to hear a few fits and starts and stops. And I did my best to fix those up in the edit. But being that I'm not a professional, it just maybe didn't happen. So bear with me on that. And then one last call. So this is the last week um, for anything sold in the store to go to benefit 100% Black Lives Matter. So if that's something that you felt like doing, do please do so. Here we go with Paul Thomas Darjelek. All right, here we go. I'm going to try the last name, Paul, and I'm going to leave this in the mix because I want to be authentic and honest with people. So Paul Thomas Darjelek, I say it right? You said it very well, almost as well as my grandma would have. But what did I say it correct, though? Yeah, you did. As far as I know, now, people correct me on my own name. Grandma says it's Darjelek. Darji means good luck. Lek means he who has. Oh, I like that. Well, either way, welcome back to the podcast. I think I've been begging you to come back on for like a year and a half. So I'm glad that we finally <laughs> did this. 
<laughs> so, glad to be here. It's good yeah. to see your face on this Zoom machine. Yeah. Thank God for Zoom, right? Like that's the world that we live in or things like Zoom. It's not, what's the word? I was going to say Overton window. It's not that. It's it's basically the window though for how people communicate. So it's definitely not the Overton window though. That's a different thing altogether. But what have you been up to? So it's been like two years since you were on the show. What's new? Goodness gracious. What's new? I've mostly been trying to make a living and trying to be a good dad, good husband. I'm working on a book that I'm ghostwriting for somebody that I'm really excited about. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of fun to be doing it in this moment. It's a it's a book about the global church. And mm. as we were talking about before the call, there's some things about this pandemic as inconvenient as it is that have accelerated certain aspects of being the body of Christ in potentially interesting ways. We're going to see what it's like in the long haul. Yeah. That's mostly what we've been doing these days. Yeah. Ghostwriting. One of these days people get to read what you've written. <laughs> My wife and I have agreed that 20. 21 is the year I've, I've, I've got half written manuscripts of about five books near completion. It's going to be fun when they all start coming back out. And I'm, I hope to be back for each of them. So. <laughs> what do you mean? You Oh, Oh, you mean on the show? I was like, where would you go? Where would you go? Yeah. Well, one of those, and, and then just, so thank you again for sending it. a while back. You sent me one on the concepts of the cosmic Christ in now, it was a PDF form, so it was formatted a little weirdly, but I found myself fascinated and both captivated with it. And I've tackled the cosmic Christ and read a bit about it in different scenarios, but it was different than what you approached with. So can you just in brief, I want to talk to you a bit about the cosmic, in brief, we're talking about Christ. So in brief, <laughs> um, uh, go over. So when you say cosmic Christ and when you've been writing about cosmic Christ and knowing that no one has read what you wrote, well, few people probably have read what you've written. What are you getting at there when you say cosmic Christ and kind of how does that relate to the way that we view Christ today? The challenge here, Seth, is going to be in brief. Contextualize <laughs> <laughs> for the listener a little bit. The book I'd shared with you previous even to that one was a big book that I've been working on for a decade, The Butterflies in God's Stomach, which is a poetic retelling of scripture's story from in the beginning to all things new. Mm -hmm. And that's been my labor of love that I've been working on it. And it's an adventure through scripture, following a stream of water that flows from Genesis to Revelation, reflecting God's love all the way. And there are certain episodes that I took a very poetic approach to it. And a literary agent suggested, she's, you know, a lot of these poems might make interesting standalone books. So I started pulling out some of those poems and they're poems on the big topics, incarnation, resurrection, Pentecost, and, the, and drawing them out, and Cosmic Christ was one of them. Mm -hmm. And so I had this Cosmic Christ poem, but I wanted to also offer a more straightforward explanation of the concept of the Cosmic Christ in Scripture, as well as a little unpacking of how that was seen through Hebrew eyes, Roman eyes, you know, most early Christians were converts. So what did this sound like to Greek ears? And at the same time, also remember, you may have read Richard Rohr's book came out. And I was so, ex I was super excited for that. I'm a huge Richard Rohr fan. Love the man. Uh, it was called the universal Christ. I, I, have, was the name. I have it. I've yet to read it. I own it. I just have not read it. It's lovely. And it's written. I think of, Father Richard Rohr as a true spiritual adept 
it's kind of written by a dude who's a thousand steps along the way. That's not to say it goes over my head. It's a lot of things I think are very elementary to him that he didn't bother to unpack. So you mm. end up with a feel in it. You're like Richard Rohr's talking about, you know, I'm the Christ, you're the Christ, my dog is the Christ. <laughs> you can come out of it with a little bit of a woo-woo feeling, and I'm not closed off to woo-woo stuff. Um, <laughs> the book resonates probably great to, for people who've just tried psychedelic mushrooms for the first time. And they're like, yes! <laughs> But what I, I thought that it just lacked a little bit of rootedness um, that I would have liked to have seen. So I added that to the book that I bounced off of you and have since rewritten. So I don't know how we want to look at that, but a, a, a one approach might be just to unpack the roots of the term cosmic Christ mm -hmm. or the Christ and follow it all the way forward. And if we do that, I think that provides an interesting trajectory uh, of what we mean when we say the Christ, but what we also mean when we say, when we talk about Jesus of Nazareth as mm -hmm. Christ. Does that sound good? Yeah, no, that sounds great. And, and if I remember right, and it's been like, what, a year? I feel like it was last fall when you sent that. I feel like that's what you did there too. Like, I think you unpacked the concept of Christ and like drilled it all the way back to like pre-Israel or pre, like you drilled it all the way back in history and pre-Israel is probably not right. So can we start there? Because I think that that concept is what, fascinated me the most. Yeah, it goes right back to the very roots of Israel. So Christ, as many listeners I'm sure know, isn't Jesus' last name. It's our translation of the word that means the anointed one, it just means anointed. So the Hebrew word for the anointed one, I don't pronounce Hebrew well. I just know if you put in there, some people will believe you. Messiah. <laughs> Uh, but it's the word from which we get the word Messiah. The same word in Greek, so if you're writing in the New Testament, you're writing Greek, the same word is Christos. It just means anointed. So the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, they're all the same word. And originally they just refer to the king of Israel. When Israel, beginning in the beginning, there was an anointing with oil, a literal oil anointing on the head. And then that is the anointed one that symbolizes God's favor. Mm -hmm. So then in the time of David, you can read in your Bible, God promises Israel that there will be an anointed one in the throne for all time. And for 400 years, that was the case. And so for all that time, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, just meant the king. It was, um, you know, a religious and political role, but then... You know, 400 years later, along comes Babylon. And you know the story. There's the whole exile. So in 589 BCE, Babylon invades Judah. They destroy Jerusalem, burn the temple, remove the Davidic king from the throne, gouge out his eyeballs, and torture his children to death right in front of him, and then gouge out his eyeballs to make sure that's the last thing he's ever seen. Mm. So you can just imagine the crisis now of faith with God's promise that there will always be an anointed one. So certain streams of the Hebrew tradition, well, they, they were making, trying to go, ask themselves, how do we make sense of this now? And this, the focus shifts from anointed one in the throne to the coming of a future anointed one of the Lord. And as many know, that anointed one of the Lord is announced by the prophet Isaiah mm -hmm. as 
King Cyrus, so a Persian king from Zoroastrian Persia, is being proclaimed by the most prominent Hebrew prophet of the day as God's anointed one. There's a tangent we could go down on that one because some people very inaccurately make that, correlate that to Trump. Yes, um, really? <laughs> yeah, let's go. What? Say that again. Yeah, let's go down that. What, how, you want to? <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> yes. So, you know, in seeing some of Donald Trump's less Christian-looking behavior, a lot of Christians, um, some strands of Christians, yeah. said, well, you know, the Lord can use anyone. Uh, just look in the Bible. The Lord used pagan Cyrus for his ends. And that is true. It's more helpful to look at the spirit of it. Mm-hmm. King Cyrus from Persia is probably the most underlooked, most important human in the formation of all civilization in some ways. The innovation that he brought over Babylon and Assyria, when you read in your Bible, these were extraordinarily brutal kingdoms. And along comes Cyrus. So the, the typical thing to happen when during a coup, say, or when you're a conquest, maybe is the better word, you kill the king, you kill their kids, you convert people to your language, to your religion, you force assimilation. Mm-hmm. And the innovation to empire that Cyrus brought was radical acceptance. In fact, as you probably know, he's the guy who freed the Jews from Babylonian exile. Gave them a choice. You want to stay here? Stay here. You want to go? Guess what? You can go back to Jerusalem. I'll open the royal coffers. You can use my money to rebuild the temple. In fact, we're going to have, you know, cedars from Lebanon cut down. We're going to have Phoenician sailors bring the wood for you. He, He was like, you want to worship your God? You worship your God? Ask him to bless me while you're at it. And in that increased openness, in that opening of borders, in that accepting of other religious traditions, other ethnicities, it's that radical acceptance and wide embrace that made Cyrus who he was. Huh. Draw your own conclusions yeah. regarding whether or not the current administration huh. is opening that embrace to immigrants and foreigners more or or not yeah yeah well and it also seems similar to the way that in the new testament rome as they're conquering well not necessarily in the new testament just in history they would show up and be like you worship whoever you want to worship it's just caesar's also god but you do what you want to do on the side just as long as we're cool that i'm also god you do what you want to do wherever you want to do it totally and you can draw a line rome inherits that from cyrus yeah Uh, in the epithet the great alexander the great took that in deference to his hero, Cyrus the Great. Pompey the Great is the Roman conqueror who conquered Judea and incorporated Judea into Rome. And he, you know, he took the same epithet, Pompey the Great, in imitation of Alexander the Great, in imitation of Cyrus the Great. Hmm. Hmm. So, so that's the Messiah for a while. Yes. Yeah, so, so how does a Messiah then get converted from a, a foreign king coming in, liberating people? Um, allowing them to worship into a, I'm going to have my own king that is not a foreign king. Like, how does that get converted into that? Right, right. So really all they're saying, all what Isaiah is principally saying is, 
here is the one. And, and by the way, the Babylonian prophets of Marduk were saying the same thing. There are similar Babylonian writings where the prophets are saying, here he comes, you know, the liberator, the liberating king. Of Cyrus. Uh, they were saying this of Cyrus because word on the street was, and they, they would hear this in Babylon, which was everybody thought it was too big to fail and too well fortified to fail. My favorite story how Cyrus got in was Herodotus says that his men diverted the Euphrates River. They went in under, left the city walls gaping, went under and took over the whole city while uh, the king of Babylon was drunk and there was no bloodshed whatsoever. <laughs> you can always look to Herodotus for the most fun version of stories, <laughs> even when you know many were accessible to him. So anyway, all they're saying at that point is, here comes our liberator. He is anointed by God to liberate us. They're liberated. And then it, it kind of becomes a question of where does the tradition go from there? So Cyrus is the Christ, but in no way does it feel like our story ends there. And so we start to see through the prophets and through visions like uh, those of Isaiah, we start to see, think of his wheels in the sky vision intersecting wheels where that move at the speed of thought wherever his thoughts go there it already is and it's filled with temple imagery and it's covered with eyes it's all seeing all knowing it's in every way a symbol of god but what's surprising to, about that to the contemporary hearer of the prophecy is that this is happening in babylon in the land of marduk that's the strange thing. Previously, and you'll see this even among Hebrew people previous to the exile, the belief is a belief in regional gods. So Ra rules over Egypt, Marduk rules over Babylon here. And part of the meaning of Ezekiel's prophecy is, no, I'm seeing a God who is the God of all and of the entire universe. And kind of that, that becomes what's unique. So then after Cyrus, the next big event in world history, you know, at the end of the day, Cyrus is just killed in battle. Again, you can look to Herodotus for the most fun version of it. He says that the, the queen Tamiris, after a battle, said, you know, where is Cyrus's body? And then she went and found it, cut off his head and stuck it in a skin full of blood and said, you know, have your fill of blood. That's the most <laughs> colorful version of his end. This, what enemy king do you want to just die, you know, COVID-19? Before, before you go from there, so I, so I know that you also listen to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. When he quotes Herodotus, he really has a good time with it. You can tell. He's like, let me, he's like, let yeah. me, let me, listen to me. Let me tell you what happened. <laughs> so, right. so good. <laughs> An another now, and this might not be directly related to the term the Christ, mm -hmm. but... It's formative in a lot of ways. After Cyrus dies, the next big, big conqueror who captured the Hebrew imagination, and unless you know what you're looking for, you might not see this in the Bible, though it is there, is Alexander the Great. Hmm. Uh, the king from Macedon takes over Greece, takes over Asia. For the first time, you know how in the Bible, Israel and Judah they're always vacillating between the East and the West, yeah. between Egypt and Assyria, Egypt and Babylon, Egypt and Persia. And there's this entire history of the world for them 
is this like, ooh, who do we give our, which stronger power do we give our allegiance to? You know, mm -hmm. minus a very brief time of autonomous, semi-autonomous power under like growing under David and then coming to its greatest height under Solomon. Yeah. So then you've got Alexander the Great, who, you know, is said to have be the, the son of his virgin mother, Olympias, who was impregnated by Zeus. You know, there's a story of her husband, King Philip, seeing her sleeping with, a, with snakes as she did in devotion to Dionysus. And he catches her before they're married. And, and anyway, in Ptolemy and in other historians, you see the, this colorful story of her impregnation before she was married mm -hmm. to King Philip. And Alexander is said by some to be the son of Zeus. He's said to be the fulfillment of the prophecies of the oracles of his culture. He comes and as a king, he unites East and West. And for the first time, and, and he, when he marched into Jerusalem, he was just welcome. They threw open the city gates and they just bowed to their new king, Alexander. For the first time, the dream shifts to a dream that maybe one king really can rule over all creation. And Alexander had this, you know, when he went to Egypt, he was greeted as a god and given the double crown of upper and lower Egypt. Everywhere he went, he seemed unstoppable. That's why people... A lot of people thought maybe this dude really is the son of Zeus, yeah. Achilles incarnate, Achilles, the war hero from the Iliad. Um, they also said he was an incarnation of Heracles. And so anyway, the main thing here is the way in which prophetic imagination shifts rule of one king of kings who rules not only over Israel and Judah, but the entire world. So that starts to capture the imagination. So what is that king going to look like? Right. And everyone, as most Christians know, expected a king who would come and conquer in the way that all kings had. David, Solomon, I mean, Alexander, uh, the Roman kings, um, you know, Tiberius, who, uh, you know, was the king, say, from like Jesus' teenage years on. And so anyway, Alexander captures the imagination in every way that any religious figure of the world ever had. He's deified within his lifetime. That's where you get the Roman tradition of deifying kings right mm. after, within a year of Julius Caesar's death, his nephew, you know, steps into power Octavian Augustus and declares Julius a god. And there was this amazing comet that was visible day and night. And everybody said, see, there's Julius joining mm. the gods. Mm. And everybody's like, I guess so. <laughs> And, and, you know, on, on the coins that Jesus carried in his pocket, they, they would say, Augustus Caesar, D.V. Filius, son of God. Yeah. So then messianic expectation splinters. Some think it'll be a political king like all of these kings. Others think it's going to be a great priest. And others still dared to imagine that this Nazarene who preached only love, who didn't fight with the sword, who relied fully on the Father, that he was king and that he was worthy of usurping all of those titles, king of king, lord of lords, prince of peace, um, all of those, some of those king of kings, lord of lords, that goes backwards through all the Roman emperors, yeah. through Alexander the Great, through Cyrus, yeah. you know, prince of peace. That was a title that went to Augustus Caesar, the king who was king when Jesus was born, 
because he too, he got in a fight with Mark Antony, united uh, the East and West, united Mark Antony, was ruling Egypt, he was ruling Rome, he the homeland, avoided civil war. Yeah. And there you go. question I have, and I didn't think about this prior, is there this, uh, and I don't want to say obsession lightly, but I'm just going to use the word obsession because I can't come up with a better one. Outside of like Israel, Hebrew, are the other civilizations at the time, because you've referenced, you know, Babylon and other oracles, are they also always expectantly looking for a Messiah or for a Christ type figure? Or does that kind of tail off as civilization moves past that form of religion? In my reading, and I'm not the world's authority on this, but the unique thing that Hebrew scripture does is this amazing dating power. So if you go through to study Babylonian literature, well, it's completely over the moment Cyrus invaded. Babylon is no more. It had been for a thousand years, and it's gone forever at that moment. And nothing made Hebrew culture be gone forever. And I would argue it's the power of their literature. It's the power of the their poetry, their poets and prophets, and don't need a throne all of the time. So what we do see, say, in Babylon is what happened a political situation in Babylon where a king who wasn't principally devoted to Marduk, the national god of Babylon, but rather to the sun god Sin, he somehow becomes king. Babylon, you know, he's also stealing like kings do. Babylon's fortune declines, people are saying, oh no, it's because Mardu is disrespected. And then they started looking forward to the liberating king who would set them free. Mm. But it's not an ongoing thing that keeps going millennia after millennia because the culture doesn't. And when you're riding high, you don't feel like you need a king to save you from your situation. Yeah. So how does that then zoom out to a cosmic version of the Christ? Like, where does that switch get flipped? It gets switched mostly climatically in writings, Apostle Paul and the authors of the Johannine Corpus referring to the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, and Revelation. And those are the place, you know, places where you can see, and you kind of have to imagine Paul, an outsider, you know, this, I think we sometimes might forget, you know, he was rocking big theaters in Ephesus, like a real cultural hub of Greek culture. You know, when Cleopatra's sister had to hide out, she went to Ephesus, went, it was home of, of the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world. And it's also easy for us to forget what a small voice some ignorant Jew would have been. You know, the whole, in Rome, the estimates vary. I think I'm seeing like seven, eight percent all of them was Jewish. Most of those were like Sadducees, Pharisees. They were kind of serving the Roman Empire. They were, you know, Rome was ruling through them. So that is a tiny voice. And they are making sense of the died and resurrected Hebrew teacher, prophet, rabbi, kind of... Um, trickster in a way that Jesus was, you know, like he was this, you know, you've heard me talk about, you know, 
the the guerrilla theater of the staging of Palm Sunday. Mm-hmm. You know, he's um, a public figure, but in a very theatrical way. And I guess where I want to bring it home. So, so the consensus definition of the cosmic Christ is that the cosmic Christ refers to that aspect of God that pervades all of creation. So if you understand it that way, you can in light of Paul and John, then you look back and you go, which kind of Christ is, you know, is it the, the kings and etc., or is it the love demonstrated on us that is going to be the Messiah, the anointed one who's come to save us, meaning all of us, no longer meaning Jerusalem, Israel, uh, but the entire planet. And here's where what I think makes it interesting. First, I have just a personal Christian affinity for Jesus, the one who relies on love no matter what, even as he marches into Jerusalem to be crowned king, second person, you know, the next person like since Solomon to be crowned, but he, Jesus day, the recent memory of Jewish Kings, they'd all go to Rome um, to be crowned. But, and, and there, it is said, this might be Herodotus too, that say Herod, King of the Jews was crowned King of the Jews by Augustus Caesar, who was then Octavian Caesar and Mark Antony on the steps of the temple of Jupiter. So even Jesus going to Jerusalem and go, this is where a real king is crowned. He's the fulfillment of the promise of God that there would always be a descendant of David on the throne. He's going to take his throne. Little does anybody know that his commitment to a God who is love would necessitate that crown being one of thorns. Uh, His life becoming the very symbol of self-sacrificial love the means through which God is at work today saving the world through the body of Christ. So when you say cosmic Christ and you zoom out, you're thinking about the widening trajectory. And when you do through the lens of the words of Jesus, who says, whatever you do, brothers, that you've done to me, when you do that through the lens of people like Paul, who just refer to the church, to us, as the body of Christ, one body, many members. Oh, okay, from that cause perspective, we are to partner with God, the creator of the universe, for the salvation of the, of the world. And what makes cool and fun in the 21st century is, dude, now we're talking about it in an era in which we actually have all the tools we need to end our whole story either in death and destruction, whether that's through nuclear war, environmental degradation, artificial intelligence run amok, a global pandemic, <laughs> or we end our story in the vision that John of Potmos had, in the vision in the very last scene of Revelation is heaven coming to join earth and God and his bride, who is the church, are one at last and all things are made new and restored to a God who is love. Yeah. So you can see that the, how important that trajectory is because it shifts the visionary responsibility of people like us 
We got to figure out how to save the world. <laughs> <laughs> we do. So I want to pivot to that. So you say we had all the tools um, to possibly, re- you know, rectify things. And so when we spoke earlier, you talked about, um, or, or in a text message, uh, talking a bit about framing this in a framework of the pandemic that we're in and some of Phyllis Tickle's stuff and, and et cetera, some of that stuff. So, um, and you said you also wanted my input, which I don't get my input often on the show. So what, what were you talking about there? I think that this endeavor of looking at these big picture things that I've kind of trained myself to do through the process of spending 10 years looking at the big story of scripture, it becomes fun to then take that zoomed out bird's eye view and something about thinking about this long view context reminded me of the work you just mentioned of, uh, our departed friend, Phil who wrote a book called The Great Emergence. And she talked about these 500 year homage sales that mm-hmm. the church has. Um, and, and just for listeners who might not be aware, she would point out, she puts out in that book, you know, 500 years ago was the Protestant Reformation. 500 years before that, in a thousand was the great schism that split between the East and Western churches. 500 years before that, Rome falls and the ages come in and the, and whereas the church had been preserved through the machination of the Roman empire, it had to, a, a monastic communities had to take up the slack when Rome was when they preserved the tradition through monasteries and convents. And then 500 years before that is Jesus. And reading that book, I thought, Oh, interesting. I bet you could keep going backwards by 500 year increments. So I, the next exercise I did that. So 500 years before Jesus is roughly when the Babylonian exile happens. Hmm. You know, there's start deportations beginning in 597. 100 years before that, well, that's when King David ascends to the throne. That's a big, big milestone. Um, 500 years before David insofar as we bother to estimate these things, uh, that's roughly the time of Moses. Mm. And, you know, there's debate whether these things are oral traditions or historic yeah. ones. People who say that's historic say, you know, then that, you, that that's about where you'd find Moses. And 500 years before that is Abraham. Now, a lot of these, now let's come back forward. A lot of these, the big shifts that happen in a tradition happen as the result of communications revolutions. So in the time of David and the kings, that's when Hebrew culture adapts alphabetic language. So it's around 800 BCE, paleo break alphabet emerges from a more, um, a more symbol-based yeah. hieroglyphic-like writing system. And so now you can start keeping things like legal codes that you see in the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, et cetera, et cetera. My mind just went amok with like three different things that people <laughs> would protest right there and, and three different like three different dialogues split off. Anyway, <laughs> around the time of the Babylonian exile, there's another big communications revolution or not, not the Babylonian exile. The next one, I guess I would point to is the one that's responsible for the birth of the Christian tradition in the first place, which is 
use of the codex. So whereas uh, texts used to be in scrolls, they started accordion style fo uh, folding those scrolls, binding them, cutting out the edges, and basically the, the precursor to a book. Yeah. And it was an inexpensive way to replicate written materials. And it's in this form that the, the materials that form the New Testament circulated. So without that wider spread circulation, uh, potentiated by the codex, who knows? You know, would these epistles have gotten around? Would these gospels have gotten around? Um, would they have disappeared before they were put to writing? Uh, a lot of scholars attribute that communications revolution. And then, you know, we need not go deep into the Protestant revolution being right. potentiated by the printing press. Yeah. Um, and here we are, brother, in the day of the internet, what is happening? And there's a lot of speculation and I'm not sure I know, but I guess I, I, I speculate that this COVID-19 pandemic is accelerating whatever we're in the midst of. And as a podcaster, you're kind of a synthesizer of ideas. You're kind of a home to listeners who uh, might be, not be able to say something at church mm -hmm. uh, and <laughs> have these discussions. I guess I was just curious. I'm a little curious how you're perceiving what's happening. Do you have any speculation as to what's happening with the church as a result of this, the world we find ourselves in? Yeah. Um, I, I, I could speculate. I don't know that I'm qualified to, but I'm happy to, but I don't think I'm qualified to. Um, yeah. So you know, when I, I look at it of two minds, so I, I talk to so many people and then I also get quite a few emails and private messages and Instagram messages, which I'm weeks delayed in answering because I'm just never on Instagram. You know, so I do talk with quite a few people. And from what I can see, both from the banking mindset, as well as being involved in my local church, like I was, I was chair of stewardship for some time and that type of stuff. So like, and I used this in a past interview a few weeks ago, like the church is in hospice care, like pastors and ministers are basically like just it's just palliative care for a dying form of institutionalized church but that doesn't mean that the church is dying it's just this institution of it is and i think that unemployment compounded with fear compounded with idolatry of that fear and or of the buildings of our church um those are all being if, if, if it was going to take a hundred years, I think it's only going to take 10 or 15. Like there's only so much in endowment funds. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah. I don't know what the church looks like going forward, but I do know, like I can go and read Ephraim. Like I can just go and, and read some of the early Syriac church fathers. And I couldn't do that 20 years ago. It, they just didn't exist. I, I The other day I just read some of the sermons of George MacDonald because I felt like it and they were free. You know what I mean? Like I could just yeah. read those. Um, I can I can go read translations of Tertullian or all these other things that didn't exist outside of seminaries. Um, and so I think there is a radical shift overall of the consciousness of a youthful church to ideas that are not bound to use your codex metaphor inside the binding of my 66 book Bible, if that makes any sense. I don't know what that means for the institution of the church though. I have no idea. Right. No, that totally makes sense. I mean, it's amazing. When you think about it, from Adam and Eve to the Renaissance, people in our Hebrew Christian tradition, Judeo-Christian tradition, or whatever you want to call it, didn't even have access to their scriptures. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it's only 500 years ago 
that printed Bibles of Thomas even existed, like how many 20 year generations is that? It's not very many, yeah. but then you're reading it through this like lens of, you know, indoctrination by what had been the institutional church until then. And it's only like, say, in my parents' generation where, you know, you might start buying books to understand the Bible or going to seminary, but that's a really small. And then suddenly in our lifetime, we've all got free online searchable Bibles in every translation we want. We've got Greek and Hebrew dictionaries, words, commentaries, cross-references. We buy books with the click of a button on Amazon. We have I'm Facebook friends with some of the world's fair scholars. It's this planetary treasury of thought from the whole world and every age in the world is suddenly available and at our fingertips. And what I think you're seeing and a lot of your listeners are seeing you know, among people who are re- deconstructing, that is a function of like suddenly you could click and suddenly you have this audio book going, wait a minute, this yeah. doesn't sound like what my past told me in Sunday school. And, you know, it causes in a lot of individuals some real un- trauma and, and, and it tripped up over the, yeah. the, the whole process, which is kind of a tragedy. You know, there's this period of deep seems like people are going on to. And I just kind of wondered, you know, with, say with pandemic, you know, there's the, the issue of like, yeah, the real estate, most churches are struggling to stay, stay around. Yeah. You know, you see these small churches and, and God bless them. You know, I, I do know people are getting healed in those and will they even be around? Yeah. Um, you've yeah, also no got people missing church and finding out that they don't really miss church <laughs> when they miss church. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And then what do we do? And you see these nexuses of, of interaction online. What does that translate into the world? It's really hard to see the truly novel innovations. So yeah. before Facebook and Twitter existed, nobody was going, if only there was this page where it had a picture and you say what's on your <laughs> Nobody was really looking at that. And yeah. so <laughs> yeah. um, you know, yeah. before, it's not like when the printing press was invented, it's not like nobody said, Oh, now there's going to be 30,000 Christian denominations. Like the, the real big things are always so hard to see, Yeah, but fun to speculate. Yeah. I mean, every day, like I was just researching the other day and I don't remember where I heard it or where I read it. Cause I, the amount of stuff I read, I honestly sometimes forget that what I, what, I, I remember what I read, but I have no idea who said it, which is really a dangerous thing. Um, cause I'm constantly afraid of plagiarism. <laughs> so, um, but I read something and, and you referenced it earlier, like, you know, Jesus is being anointed as King in Jerusalem. And then, um, it was a conversation about the parables. Um, it might've actually been on the Bible project now that I think about it, but either way they were talking about, yeah, he, Jesus is telling a parable about a King that goes away to become King and then comes back. And, I never read it that way. And they were saying, well, it's just so subversive because basically what he's trying to do is the parables aren't about what we think about. The parables are about what he's trying to do. And so he's telling the story of I'm king here, not like the kings that go away to be anointed as king. I'm just king. Um, it just, and I was like, I never thought about that context at all. So every day it's like there's new context to words that I read my entire life, which didn't exist 20 years ago for me. It's really interesting. So for the, the early 
listeners of the oral tradition of that story, their king, uh, you know, there was great enthusiasm about being emperor of Rome uh, during the lifetimes of, of Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar. By the time you get to Tiberius, he's a little lukewarm about the role. He goes off and he's an absent king. He's, he spends most of it on this island in the Mediterranean, you know, just kind of in this, you know, distant um, thing. I uh, just got a message that my internet connection is unstable. <laughs> Sorry about that. That is true. But anyway, <laughs> that is accurate. Uh, there, it would, <laughs> Darn! I don't, I don't know what it is. No telling. One of your kids is probably streaming Netflix. It doesn't it? Doesn't matter. <laughs> it's it's it's, yeah. it's fine either way. But um, but yeah, it's just yeah. I I don't know what the I have no idea what the church will look like for my children. I don't actually know what it'll look like ten years from now. Like I know personally how many churches stayed afloat with staff salary because of the payroll protection loans that are quickly coming into the end of their two and a half months of getting. And I don't know that the giving has ticked up in the last two and a half months because the unemployment rate is so high. Like it's literally just a mathematical equation, um, which I kind of like that that type of institution of church is dying because it's forcing Christians to actually be Christians as opposed right. to a social club. But I don't know that the church is ready for that. I don't, I don't know that the church, and by church, I mean you and I. Like, I don't know that the church is ready for that, that confrontation. So That's what I hope, you know, in, in that big literary effort, uh, the butterflies in God's stomach, the, the idea of understanding scriptures as the love story of God wooing humankind to be his bride in a world where we've lost the plot. In my own personal thought, the reframing there that is important is instead of understanding or Christianity in terms of church attendance, which is, you know, I, I don't even have a cynical view of the institutional church. I've had a blast inside churches of all denominations and, and I worked with all of them to help save the world. <laughs> yeah. But but at the same time, maybe it's time we question that the church is or ought to be a Sunday motivational speaking business, right. which is kind of what it looks like. And yeah. I don't mean that, you know, pejoratively, but if I have a legacy, I, I would love to reframe our understanding what the Bible is as a love story that we find ourselves in and get engaged. Yeah. Everybody engaged. And increasingly, my personal trajectory is to less and less see the church, I think traditionally people have seen the church as, well, it's the it's the accumulation of all those people who go to those Sunday morning motivational speeches, mm -hmm. right? Like who or prof professed Christians. If you accepted Jesus as your savior, you're on the inside. Everyone else is on the outside. The more I take, in some ways, a more literal view of scripture and salvation or soteriology, if you want to use the big word, it, it actually is for the salvation of the, the whole human endeavor yeah. with and through people partnering with his love to bring that about. So, you know, it's harder and harder in life for me to imagine God, you know, going like, finally, this one's in. He accepted Jesus <laughs> as his savior. Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe all along, we're supposed to be loving God back by take, caring for the gift God gave us, which is creation and each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's a good place to stop it for two reasons. I need to feed my children. Um, and really, it's just that reason. Um, <laughs> I need to go feed my children. But yeah, no, I think that is right. But um, but yeah, I'm going to hold you accountable to 2021. I'm just going to keep releasing this over and over again in 2021. <laughs> every week, every episode is this uh, until you until you publish the books. Um, anyhow, Paul. There's any way to be accountable. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Paul. I really enjoyed it. I did. Oh, oh, too. oh! I, I didn't. Know. I didn't ask you the same question that I ask everyone. Oh my gosh! I almost forgot. Um, try your best. So when you say, Paul, to your children, to your neighbor, hey, when I say God is this, what what words would you try to wrap around that? I think I start with just a real big definition, and it is God is that upon which everything depends for existence. So I'm happy to start there. Mm -hmm. And then we have traditions through which we aim to understand that God. And I think it's noteworthy to note that the prophets and it's all traditions. There's not a lot that they agree on, but one thing seems that they do agree on every mystic who has a direct experience of God says that experience is one of and I think that's worth noting within mm-hmm. our, and hey, we got it in, in, in the Bible. God is love. We got those words directly. It's worth noting that on a, a planet-wide basis, people notice that. Let's, I like to start there, and then the rest is details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. that it's, it, yeah, I like that. I was going to try to restate it, but I can't do it better than you. That's, I like that very much. So <laughs> point people to where they should go to get in touch with you, do all the things with you? Where do you want people to go if you want them to go anywhere? If you want to go anywhere, you can find me on Facebook, Paul Thomas Dirichlet, D-A-R-I-L-E-K. Another page is Paul Thomas Author. If you want a free gift from me, you can get an old free gift that is uh, it's the introduction and some sample chapters to that book I mentioned, The Butterflies in God's Stomach. You'll get audio and in PDF at butterfliesbook.com. It's just my free gift. It'll be fun to listen to them so that you can hear how it changes when the real thing comes out this year. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Paul, thank you so much. Very much so. I've enjoyed it, man. Thank you. Today's episode was brought to you from people like Josh and Patrick Antill. Patrons of this show make it go. And so not only to those two, but to every single person that does that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Could not do this without you. If you haven't done that and you get anything at all from this show, consider doing so. At different levels, you'll get different things. So some people get to see the video version of the show. Other people, hopefully, if I'm on my game and lately with COVID and school, I have not been as on my game in all honesty. I'm so humbled by the support of so many people. So, would love to count you among them. Huge thank you to Salt of the Sound for your music again in this episode. As we enter into fall, I really pray that your faith grows and stretches beyond measure. And that you deal well with that pain. That you find safe places to hold it. Know that you're beloved. Talk with you next week.